You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, professor and chair of the International Relations Department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And I'm Stacy philbrick of associate professor of international relations. And after a semester away on sabbatical, I'm glad to be back here in the Geneva Sound Factory talking about some big stuff with you. Stacy, it's nice to have you back. As always, each episode of this podcast is put together by one of our international relations majors. Today's episode focuses on the unfolding war in Ukraine after Russia's recent invasion. And we're joined by Christopher Calero. Hi, Chris. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. So I'm an international relations and economics double major here at the colleges. For international relations, my focus is specifically on global security and diplomacy. My regional focus is the Asia Pacific, but with the war going on in Ukraine, I've Tend, I found that really interesting, kept keeping up with the news on that. So I was really fascinated and very interested when you came up to me with this preposition to perform this podcast, and I'm really excited and thankful for the opportunity. So Chris, it's nice having you join us. You mentioned that your regional focus is on Asia Pacific, and are there any courses that you've taken, though, that are helping you understand what's happening in Ukraine right now? Yes. So currently I'm in Professor Dunn's American Foreign Policy course, which has contributed to my understanding of how the U.S. US Soviet relations during the Cold War, and it also helps me understand how U.S. foreign policy has evolved since World War II and how this current stance we are taking involving the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I also took a course last semester called Europe Since the War, which we are, where we examined the European Union and European states since World War II, which was very interesting to me and helped provide a better understanding of the the immigration crises that Europe has gone through and other issues within the European continent, which are very crucial to this understanding the war in Ukraine, I believe. So I think this really speaks to the importance of interdisciplinarity in our curriculum and the kind of interconnectedness across these areas we call regions. It's so tempting to come at contemporary political questions with a kind of presentist mindset, but there are layers of context and important sense-making tools that historians help us to develop. So I'm not a historian at all, but I'm teaching an interdisciplinary course in Asian studies this semester on the Ottoman Empire, and I've been learning so much from historians that we've been reading about Ottoman-Russian engagement in the Black Sea, which you know includes parts of what's today the Ukraine, and essentially talking about when and how and why Crimea and parts of the Ukraine, quote unquote, became Russian in the late 18th and 19th century. Yeah, you know, for this episode, uh, Chris, you interviewed Professor David Oast, who's part of the HWS IR department, as well as the political science department and European studies program. He's an expert on European politics. He takes a very historical view uh, when engaging those questions. Uh, And it was a pleasure to have him join us. Given that things are moving so quickly, we should note that this interview was recorded on the 11th of March, 2022. So let's listen to that interview now. 
In justifying his actions, Putin has created a historical narrative that questioned Ukraine's independence and places Ukraine and its people as part of a larger Russia. How accurate is that historical narrative? Well, no historian and no politician can simply decide who is a nation and who is not. That's something that changes over time. We know that not so long ago, well, in historical terms, people didn't consider themselves or didn't consider the nation as an important category. They considered their local village or they considered their religion for hundreds of years was much more important than nation. And so um, right, Putin writes this text and he's been very focused or obsessed on that for some time. Last year in July of 2021, he wrote, and who knows, he might have actually written it himself, a long article about you know 8,000 words going through all of this history. And in his view, right, there's one great Russia that includes everyone who today we would call Russian or anyone today he, he would call Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. So he insists that all of these three peoples are part of one larger great Russian nation. So he insists that's the truth. Now, as I said at the beginning, nations change all the time. We know there's a Palestinian nation today. When Israel occupied that land, there was not a strong sense of a Palestinian nation because they weren't separated from the other, um, from Jordan or other uh, Arab neighbors so much. So when Israel occupied that land, and then soon after Palestinians start talking about Palestinian rights, Israel would say, with looking at the history, just like Putin is, there's no such thing as a, as a, uh, Palestinian nation. They said this is all just part of Jordan. But of course, over time, that changes and Palestinianness appeared. And same in Russia, right? Putin can talk all he wants about what happened once upon a time way back in the past. And he even goes back to a thousand years ago when some mythical or really existing uh, 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 leader of a Viking group of people who lived in that area when this person, Vladimir, adopted Orthodox Christianity and, and claims that this was a moment in which this nation all came together. Um, you know, and then he says this was true all this time until the Bolsheviks broke it up. Anyway, my point is that Right. Ukrainianness has been a concept, a nationalism that people in Ukraine have fought for. And to get to the current times that are most important, of course, um, in the last couple of decades, since the end of the Soviet Union, we can say in 1991, when the Soviet Union broke up, this idea of a totally independent Ukraine was not clear to a lot of people living in Ukraine. That is, they voted, 
many people have said, well, they voted for independence strongly, overwhelmingly in the beginning of 1991. And that's true, but it has to be taken into a context where Russia had already broken away from the Soviet Union and elected its own president. So there was really no choice but to uh, have an independent Ukraine. Um, but over time, uh, in Ukraine, while that sense of Ukrainianness was not so clear, it became stronger over the years. Part of the uh, Orange Revolution in 2004 had something to do with it, but particularly the Maidan in 2013-14. And after that, I'm getting to the end of it now, sorry for the long answer, but after that um, issue, after the... Um, Maidan and then the seizure of Crimea, then we know from all opinion polls and voting data that uh, more and more people started feeling that absolutely there is a sense of Ukraine, Ukrainian independence, and no, we're not part of a larger Russia, we're just us. Thank you for that. On top of the historical narrative, Putin has also justified his actions by stressing threats to Russia's own security. Is Russia justified in their security concerns over Ukraine becoming more aligned with the West? You know, I think big states always talk like this, that their security is jeopardized by anything, and it becomes an excuse for them to insist on having reliable or compliant or dependent governments and states near them. So, of course, we know, and many people have said this, that, well, the United States certainly insists on that. It would not tolerate uh, Mexico being part of an alliance that would be um, led by another power. And so Russia does that, too. Now, you know, America, of course, was not threatened. American security was not threatened by the Sandinista a revolution in the 1980s and nevertheless took action against it. Russia has not really been threatened by, um, by Ukraine's turn to the West or even by NATO itself since there is this uh, nuclear deterrence and, and right there's no special interest in having that kind of fight. So you know, I don't think, I think nobody really thinks Russia's security is really threatened. However, of course, as a big state, they play that big state game that we have rights that our neighboring peoples don't, uh, small neighboring peoples. So then they insist, and they have been strong, that Ukraine should be part of, um, you know, that any turn to the West and certainly any NATO expansion would be um, a, a real a real threat to the West. So, um, you know, the, the issue of NATO has always come up. And, um, you know, George W. Bush, so Bush Jr. in 2008, rather peremptorily uh, promised that at some time, yes, we will take Georgia and Ukraine into NATO without any intention of really following through on it. United States and NATO uh, political forces have been divided about this for quite some time. Um, so 
you know, yeah, look, they said they were going to do it. They keep saying we're not going to do it anytime soon. Putin responded to that, said, okay, NATO, you keep saying you won't take Ukraine in NATO tomorrow, but what about the day after tomorrow, right? Maybe the day after that. So, you know, he used that as another justification to prevent this from going into NATO. Of course, the irony is that depending how this ends, if there is even a rump Ukraine left, if Putin becomes satisfied with keeping only a small part of Ukraine, then there's going to be enormous pressure uh, to bring that rump Ukraine into NATO. And of course, right now, he's got much greater security threats than um, have ever existed, actually, to Russia since World War II. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. It's actually kind of getting into the next question I have here. So I was kind of, we were kind of wondering, Will the war in Ukraine fast-track NATO expansion for those states who were either on defense or not certain about joining NATO in the near to long-term, the short-term future? Well, which, I'm not sure which states you're talking about. I mean, there are the two Soviet states, Ukraine and Georgia. You know, in the last couple of days, right, we've read that, um, uh, you know, Finland supposedly is thinking about it. So, so. I'm not sure what you mean by your question here. Yes. So if I, I believe if I remember correctly, I was referring to Sweden and Finland in particular about joining NATO. You know, no, it's very hard to say, right? That's a big change in Finland and Sweden, right, that they haven't wanted to do it. There's immediate pressure right now to to do so. It's unclear whether that is a sign of political solidarity with, uh, with a NATO idea that Ukraine wants to join or whether it's something that they feel is really, is, is, is really important. So, you know, I think NATO as a whole and the United States as the leader of NATO, but the other countries have votes too, NATO as a whole would be happy to take them in. Um, but uh, it doesn't require that. And I think there's going to be a very strong discussion in Finland and Sweden. And, uh, you know, obviously it depends how this is going to play out. And, uh, you know, as we know, the play out of this war has, uh, is, is completely unknown. Completely unknown whether it's uh, whether NATO forces are going to be involved, whether if they are involved, that's going to be, you know, so-called traditional or non-nuclear conflict, or whether there'll be nuclear bombs of various sizes dropped here and there. That's now possible. So, um, yeah, I, I think. The short answer is we don't know, and it depends mostly on internal discussions in Finland and Sweden that are going to be based on how this war plays out. As the war progresses, and if Russia continues to face, um, not defeats, but kind of uncertainty and Russian bodies get sent home, um, what is the likelihood of a coup in Russia as the war progresses and there's economic sanctions progress as well? Yeah, this has become the uh, foreign policy of um, those who are opposed to the war because and there seems to be 
at least that's the narrative, that there's no way to stop Putin. So the only way to stop him is for him to be toppled. Um, you know, look, we know that Putin for a long time has um, isolated himself from many other groups in Russia. He's very close to the uh, almost all or all of his top advisees are people from the Silaviki, a word that has become increasingly used, a Russian word, and your listeners should know it's um, S-I-L-O-V-I-K-I, and it refers to those, Sila in Russian means force, so it's those from the, we would say, the law and order ministries, so the ministries of uh, of military foreign intelligence, um, uh, uh, police, uh, internal security. These are the ministries and the people that he feel that, that he is um, especially, especially close to. He seems to have virtually no contact with anyone else. So um, the, uh, and, and even among that very top leadership, we know that many of them are, are kind of uh, you know, un- incapable of speaking honestly uh, to Putin, at least some of them, because of this very bizarre but important TV show about two days before the invasion when Putin had it broadcast on TV, a meeting with him and his top officials and one of his closest advisors, who's the head of um, foreign intelligence, I think, um, and someone Putin has known and worked with for over uh, for well over thirty years, uh, when he, Putin humiliated him on live TV, and because the guy didn't know what was Putin thinking and just tried to parrot what Putin was thinking, I mention this because that seems to make it less likely that there's anyone in his circle who is uh, able to stand up for him or who feels that there's, uh, you know, a need to do so. We also have the, uh, you know, incredible disinformation going on. So, um, and uh, yeah, so there's not much possibility of learning any other view. The pressure is going to come from the middle class, um, from uh, uh, even some of the oligarchs who are going to lose a lot of their capabilities and a lot of their resources in the West, uh, you know, that, that they'll be putting some pressure. But that kind of pressure takes a while. If, and, and um, you know, Putin does seem quite isolated from that for, for some time to come. Going that you kind of touched on my next question here when you were discussing the disinformation. So, I was wondering how much control does the Russian state have over the media in Russia, and is this control successful or unsuccessful in controlling the opinions of the Russian population? Yeah, well, that has grown exponentially in the last um, in the last week. You know. Um, <laughs> Lenin once gave a uh, comment that some people have been repeating here lately, saying, um, I think he wrote this in 1917 during the revolution, 
and he was talking to someone else, maybe to Trotsky, and you know, said there are there there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen, and we are we are experiencing those weeks when it seems decades happen, and that's in relation to your last question is uh, to to this this question just now as well, right? State control over the media. Putin, uh, of course, Russia has been not out of the Soviet Union for 30 years now. And um, in the 1990s, when it fell apart, the media control that, of course, was essential and part of the Soviet system broke down very quickly. And within a few years, you had a plethora of different media. There were different oligarchs. Uh, who controlled, well, people who were becoming oligarchs, and not yet that, but set up media channels, and, and there was some diversity there. In the 1990s, um, media were, 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 were very tough on their leaders, uh, denouncing Yeltsin. They had powers to make and break presidents, and Yeltsin uh, didn't have much say over it. Yeltsin had to engage with them by doing the infamous loans for shares program where Yeltsin is head of the state empowered these media people turned them into oligarchs by giving them shares for uh, oil and gas and the, and the resources and in return the media made sure that they would discredit his opposition candidate and um, do everything they could to get Yeltsin elected and that happened. So when Putin comes into office in 2000, uh, he's facing also a very tough, I mean, it's hard to imagine today, but there were media people in 2001 who were looking at Putin like, who does this guy think he is, you know, trying to assert control? We're going we're gonna to break him. Some of them actually thought that could happen, you know, showing that the state had very little control over the media then. Well, you know, the oligarchs thought they had too much power. Putin reined them in, in particular by uh, charging, and no doubt correctly, because to become an oligarch, you had to break all these financial rules. So the two top uh, oligarchs, Berezovsky and Hodorkovsky, uh, within a couple of years were uh, arrested for all kinds of financial shenanigans, of which they were no doubt guilty, because anyone doing business then was violating certain uh, legal rules and um, had had them exiled or thrown in prison and slowly got control over that media. And now in the last weeks, in the last two weeks, uh, the last remaining independent TV station has been closed and there was a semi-independent radio station that's also been closed. And now within a day, they passed this law saying that if you mention the word war or call this an invasion, you can go to jail and, and uh, uh, you know, a, a, a multiple infraction can lead to 15 years in prison. So um, right now, the only way some people, even on the telephone to others, like I hear some call-in shows, calling somebody, an individual there in Russia, and if the call-in question asks, well, what about the war going on, then the person who is very against the war in Russia says, 
well, uh, that's not a word we're now allowed to use here. But as far as the events going on in Ukraine, and then they'll criticize it harshly, but they can't even use the term. And, um, you know, as they're as when they pass this law, making it a crime to use the word war or invasion, then a lot of journalists have left. Right. The New York Times has pulled out of there. They don't want their reporters uh, to be um, breaking the law there. So, uh, yeah, it has more control over the media than it has in 30 years, probably more more control than it did in the late Soviet period, since there wasn't that kind of direct control um, in the Soviet Union. Censors were all, they were people, there were censors that existed in the, uh, in the journals and newspapers and radio shows themselves. They didn't have a state censorship, but um, yeah, now, now that, that is controlled more than ever. And as you've, probably heard right they banned um facebook from there uh right and now they're um on the verge of declaring facebook a um terrorist organization because facebook made an exception of its uh calls where you know you can't wish death upon anyone and facebook says well if they're a ukrainian saying you know down with or the death to the soldiers they're allowing it and Putin's using that as a reason to um, continue the ban and to, um, you know, denounce it as a terrorist organization. Okay, thank you. Um, just touching up on that, do you think there will be any opportunities or chances for independent journalists to, or maybe corporations or firms to combat this misinformation campaign being pushed by Putin? Well, of course, uh, I mean... It, it, very few people accept this narrative elsewhere. Do you mean inside Russia? Um, yes, pretty much more inside Russia because I believe the international community has a pretty united response to the invasion of Ukraine. Well, that's another question. I mean, it's not so clear the international community. The West is more united, but this is opening up all kinds of issues connected with North-South um, relations, as we know. You know, uh, uh, India or um, South Africa, right, would not vote in the UN against the invasion. And, um, you know, they want to keep things open to everyone. They also say, well, this is something the West always does. They don't take much interest or care for us. And then when there's a crisis on its territory or something that's so important to to the West, then, then, then they demand we, you know, turn on a dime and follow their, follow their policies. So, uh, you know, that's we're also seeing that happen right now. <laughs> that's part of the decades happening within weeks. There's so much going on that we can't even, you know, don't have the time to focus on. But, um, uh, but, but, but there's a, a big gaps opening there. But getting to your question about within. Um, Within Russia, well, no, because they've they have these laws and this tough rule, and there's no media company that can resist it right now. Uh, no, it's just getting worse and worse by the day, and that's why you have all these reports of um, you know Putin is right about one thing, but 
nobody ever deny that. So everybody in the region in Russia and Ukraine is united about that. Namely, they're united about the fact that there's a lot of historical aspects and cultural aspects that bind together people in Russia and people in Ukraine, right? And especially in the center and eastern Ukraine, a little less so in western Ukraine, that has always been, you know, the most anti-Russian and we don't have much to do with Russia. Uh, but the rest of Ukraine has always felt we're very connected with Russia. All right. Um, really appreciate that. Getting to my final question here. Um, in the aftermath of a successful Russian invasion and occupation, what is the likelihood of a Ukrainian insurgency with guerrilla warfare? And what happens if terrorism against Russia and Ukraine leads to Russia conducting anti-terror operations in NATO territory? Yeah, good question. Very, very hard to unpack. So, look, one of the reasons everyone said that it makes no sense, it's hard to or impossible to achieve your aims, if you're if Putin's aims, if its aims are to have a Ukraine that voluntarily feels close to Russia, uh, you won't have it with an invasion because um, even if you have a swift occupation, then there would certainly be guerrilla warfare going on. And that still seems to be so. What's different right now is that the occupation has not occurred, right? And so it's anything but swift. And so um, we just don't know how this is going to uh, end. And it's, you know, possible. I mean, people are just like, you know, in the last two weeks, everyone's saying, well, this can't happen, this can't happen. And every moment we say, oh, gee, it can. And so the latest thing that many are talking about is, gee, the Russian forces in Chechnya uh, under Putin in 2000, uh, early 2000s, when they wanted to insist on finally taking control of Chechnya and of the capital, they just leveled the capital in ways that have not been seen since World War II, massive bombing, right, conducted by, um, well, first the fascists and then by the allies against them. So we just haven't seen that. And people say, well, you can't do that in a giant city like uh, 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 Kiev or these other places or Kharkiv. And um, we haven't gotten there yet. That is, they're hitting more and more sites. They're breaking all kinds of conventions by hitting schools and hospitals, among other places. It's possible that as resistance continues, that there will be a carpet bombing and destruction of these cities. And if they win in a way that is not swift, a swift victory would have led to a big insurgency with guerrilla warfare. A very slow, complete destruction of the place will, will kill a lot of those people who would take up the guerrilla warfare. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's my answer. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine any people voluntarily accepting a, um, a, a new government aligned with Russia, except that we know, you know, it'd 
people are utterly just defeated and, and killed and destroyed and everything is broken up, then also people say, well, we need to live also. And there could be, uh, right, people just living to survive and not engaging in that kind of activity. But if that happens, that insurgency will um, occur later. So it's, it's hard to see to get out of it. That final question uh, you asked, what happens if terrorism against Russia? I guess you mean insurgency, which they obviously would call terrorism, um, uh, leads to Russia conducting anti-terror operations in NATO territory. Well, look, that's the, you know, already people are wondering, the West is supplying weapons there. That does not yet seem to trip into Russia attacking the places from which they are supplied. If there is a no-fly zone, which some people in the I don't know if in the, I mean, the right is kind of divided. Some of the right in the West is pro-Putin still. But those who are now, you know, that militarist right are now saying there should be a no-fly zone. That would probably lead to clashes with Russia. And then Russia might well feel, well, we'll attack the airports in NATO countries from which the no-fly zone airplanes are uh, leaving from. So, um, you know, what happens there? Well, we have the United States, Vice President Harris is there in the region reaffirming what, uh, what uh, Biden has said and Blinken has said, you know, and they keep stressing now we'll defend every inch, every inch uh, of uh, NATO territory. So, um, you know, so they're committed to that. I mean, if there is that kind of thing, I guess I personally would not expect nuclear weapons to be deployed in the first day or two. Uh, again, what we expect has little meaning right now, but still, they, they, there, there could be, you know, some ways before that happens. And the other danger about nuclear weapons is that. Um, while we still think, and rightly we think, of mutually assured destruction that seems to limit the use of nuclear weapons, we also know that the big innovation in nuclear weapon technology has been the perfection of very small, very small, you know, uh, uh, in terms of nuclear weapons. So, uh, right, there's a nuclear weapon that's something about one-tenth the size. Professor Dunn might uh, know this more than me, I forget the exact number, but or, or even less, maybe one twentieth the size of Hiroshima, right? And Nagasaki, the only ones that have been used, right? So, um, you know, there's there's this possibility of this nuclear use of nuclear weapons that doesn't necessarily call for oh, you you're not going to destroy all of your countries with that, so. You know, that's yet another danger of the kind of the legitimation of, oh, a small, small nuclear weapons. But, you know, all of these things, look, everything has gotten so disastrously out of hand. And I guess it's good we have this interview and interview recorded on this day, because in a year from now, it'll be interesting to listen to this and see 
what of this made any sense or what we're entirely missing. Definitely. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today, Professor Rose. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. That was a fascinating conversation covering a lot of information. Chris, you asked a number of really important questions that covered the historical claims Putin is making regarding Ukraine, all the way up to some current developments on the ground, to, to questions kind of speculating about future possible developments. I'm curious, Chris, what you thought were some of the key points that you took away from that conversation with Professor Ost. Some of the key points I took away, it was very interesting, the, the relationship between Russians and Ukrainians I found very interesting. Um, I also found particularly interesting the quote, I believe, from Trotsky under Lenin that he highlighted about de- decades within the weeks. I found that quote particularly interesting as the current landscape is rapidly changing and we don't know what's going to happen next. It could easily lead to a widespread war across the European continent. I also found Professor O's reference to that quote by Lenin to be insightful and quite prescient. I'm sure the situation we're discussing today will be quite different to the one our listeners will be living with when they hear this podcast. You know, that sensitivity to change and Professor Ost's routine use of comparison is what I really appreciated most about the interview, actually. He made a good case that Russia today isn't Russia as it was when Putin became president, much less Russia under Yeltsin, etc. And while he could trace continuities from the Orange Revolution to the Maidan movement in the, and the Ukrainian resistance today, they were likewise not simply just repeats of earlier moments. As social scientists, we too often engage in a kind of methodological nationalism that takes units, usually nation states, as coherent units, doesn't always think about how or whether those units themselves are changing in important ways. So the discussion of press freedoms, the role of oligarchs, Putin's changing relationship to the security services, all really highlighted that. Those are those are excellent points. You know, one of the things I've been discussing with my students in my American foreign policy class that Chris referenced is how substantially different the current global context is from when Russia invaded the Crimea in 2014. Yes, Biden was in the White House then as vice president, but the geopolitical situation is now quite different. And that isn't just because of the COVID disruptions. A number of state leaders have changed over that decade, most notably in Germany and Ukraine itself. In the four years of Trump's presidency, with his trade wars with adversaries and allies alike, his undermining of long-held alliances, and his disruptive attacks on international institutions such as the United Nations and NATO, have all had an effect on the global order and the U.S.'s place in that system. Now, on the other hand, Putin's invasion is substantially altering what was the status quo just a few months ago. And again, the international order is very much in flux. While Professor Ose was correct to point out that the invasion has thrown some illuminating light on global north-south differences, Russia's relations with the entire global community have significantly altered, and there's an interesting reordering taking place right in front of our eyes. Yes, the Russian invasion offers a number of substantial challenges to Europe, the U.S., and the international community, but also offers opportunities for change and new spaces to maneuver, and I see a number of state leaders taking advantage of that. The fact that the U.S. is strengthening its alliances with key European allies and meet, sorry, recalibrating its relations with longtime adversaries such as Venezuela is fascinating. Again, the global landscape is changing right in front of our eyes. 
Definitely. And I think one thing that underscores that for me and was maybe a little implicit in the interview, uh, but as somebody who studies the Middle East and the kind of thin boundary between civil and international uh, war, Professor Ost talked in passing about Putin's military campaigns in Chechnya and Dagestan, two parts of Russia that had secessionist movements that became armed insurgencies where counterinsurgent forces used unbelievable violence within Russia's own borders. And then the Russian military turned some of the same force on civilian targets in Syria over the course of the last decade in the context of Putin's alliance with Assad. So the blurring of counterinsurgency tactics and civilian targeting in these earlier theaters both domestic and international, makes it harder to find the kind of destruction of civilian infrastructure or the scope of violence in Ukraine right now entirely surprising. It's reprehensible, of course, but it's not coming from some kind of brand new menu of options. So yes, the the global landscape is changing, but that's overlaid also, I think, with the, the these escalating tactics that have been been applied both domestically and internationally by Russia over the past 20 years or so. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, as much as things change, other things very much stay the same. And again, as you point out, we're seeing some of the practices uh, by the Russian military that definitely um, reflect the the counterinsurgency practices they've used within Russia and have been really putting to great effect uh, in Syria, destructive effect, I should say. Um, Chris, let me bring you back into this conversation. What were some of the other significant points in your conversation, Professor Ost, that you would want to highlight for us? I found the way he discussed the control that over the Russian state media, I found that really interesting as we're constantly on our phones, we're, we're constantly being fed information, and just realizing how much different it is from the West or from the United States in Russia, and how they criminalized the, they made it illegal to say the word war or invasion when referring to what's happening in Ukraine, found that very interesting. And, and I was like, thinking that effect on the Russian people could be very drastic. And in my mind, at least, if there's no control, there's no control over Putin's power, over Putin's reach. So if the people are not able to hold him responsible or if they can't publicly express dissent, then what's to stop him from escalating war further? And I believe Professor also saying that what's them to stop them from completely leveling and devastating the capital of Kiev or other major cities in Ukraine? One of the things Professor Ose and I keep saying to each other in our conversations is the disbelief that we're making statements like Russia's military assault on Kiev or Russian troops moving on Odessa, statements that we never thought we'd ever say in our lifetimes. And now you and, and he were having kind of a frank conversation about the use of nuclear weapons. You know, I grew up in the Cold War, so such comments and sentences are not completely alien to me, but they haven't been serious considerations for several decades. Chris, you're young. You haven't gone through this before. How does it feel to be having a conversation where we're actually imagining the use of nuclear weapons? Yeah, the possibility of nuclear warfare is definitely um, horrific. I would definitely say it's troubling to think about, scary in a sense. Uh I would like to think that it won't happen, but as Professor Ose was saying during the conversation, we don't know what's going to happen next. It is very possible that nuclear weapons be used within the future. That is just just frightening to think about because even if it was, I believe they're referred to as technical nuclear weapons that Professor Ose was talking about, the smaller nukes, 
even if it was one of those nukes, they still have devastating power and consequences. Once nukes are used in general, what's to stop a country from escalating that further? Those consequences would just be unfathomable to me, at least. So, Kevin, I'm glad you brought up this idea about how we grew up with this. I was driving into work last week and I heard that Sting, yeah, that Sting, had recorded his 1985 song Russians again last week. It was a tough listen. And Chris, if you've never heard it, I recommend that you give it a listen. We can't play it on the podcast, I'm sure. But in short, while the song distinguishes between Soviet leaders and Russian people, it also suggests that the risk of nuclear war hinges on whether or not Russians love their children just like other people do. When I played this 2022 version in in class, students thought maybe it was a little offensive to suggest that Russians might not or to imply that Russians might not love their children too. And I totally see where they're coming from with that. But they also noticed that unlike the 1985 version, the new version closes with the statement that Russians love their children and tries to widen the gulf between Putin and, you know, average Russians. So this version, as I read it, is addressing the growing Russophobia that we're seeing through boycotts and deplatforming and general efforts to mobilize anti-Russian sentiment, banning vodka, canceling a performance of Tchaikovsky, things like that. If Professor Ost is right, and I think he is, that Putin is politically isolated, the relationship between Russians and Russia and Putin is something that we need to be approaching, I think, a lot more thoughtfully. And I, for one, don't want to return to the kind of Russophobia that characterized my childhood. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I appreciate you referencing the, the, the Sting song, his, his remake, because for each episode, we try to incorporate a non-traditional text, whether it be a song, poem, or a diary entry. And for this episode, we've chosen a song, not a Sting song, but a song that's popular right now in Ukraine. It's by the band Mondri and was written immediately after the Russian invasion. Uh, it's available for free download via SoundCloud, and the title translates to Run Military. So let's listen to that now.
всіх наш український військовий забіг. Хлопці, дівчата, в наші лави ставай, прапор України біля серця тримай. Усі перешкоди здолаємо ми, слава Україні всім героям війни. Ставай разом з нами, це свято для всіх, триває український військовий забіг. Наш український військовий забіг, як каже отець капелан, це добрий ліки вітран, мілітарі ран. So it's hard to know precisely how the conflict will develop in the days that follow, but it's hard to imagine that that song is going to become irrelevant. Thanks, Chris, to you for your part in this episode and to Professor Ost for helping to show us once again that despite what we may know or think we know, it's always more complicated than that. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Christopher Calero and hosted by Stacey Philbrick-Yadov and Kevin Dunn. The producer is me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and of the Geneva Sound Factory. Thank you for listening.